Hi, everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and console questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. We'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case and pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. I have our usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Okay, today we are joined by my new friend, Zach, so I'm going to let him say hello and introduce himself. Hi, my name is Zach Lorenz. I'm a PGY2 internal medicine resident at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. I'm in our medical education track, and I'm interested in ID. Yes, perfect. The best way to be. (laughs) And I am going to give you the honor of introducing our special guest today. Our special guest uh, expert discussant today is Dr. Khalil Ghanem. He's a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and in the Division of Population, Family, and Reproductive Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's been the principal investigator of the CDC-funded Johns Hopkins STD and HIV Prevention Training Center since 2014, and his research focuses on reproductive tract infections, in particular syphilis and the vaginal microbiome. He's the current president of the American Sexually Transmitted Diseases Association. Thank you, Sarah and Zach. I am (laughs) delighted to be here. So great. Um, Before we jump into the case, we always open it up by saying we are everyone's favorite culture podcast. So we like to ask if you can share a little piece of culture that brings you joy or happiness. I would love to. (laughs) I am am an avid collector of art. Um, I'm not a good collector of art because (laughs) somebody who's good would actually focus on one thing and really collect. I just focus on things that, you know, make my heart pitter-patter. And so um, uh, I love to collect art in general, all types, paintings, uh, you know, works on paper, uh, ceramics, textile, anything that makes my heart beat, I am going to buy and put in my house. And so I am not a minimalist. I live with art (laughs) and art is what allows me to stay sane during these difficult times. So I would encourage people to find things that they love, artistic things, and to uh, collect them uh, and to keep them close at hand and to look at them every day. And that hopefully will bring them great joy. Um, And so that's what I do. I love that. My husband and I, whenever we go on a trip or we travel, we try to buy some piece of art or like something, some sort of trinket or like memory. And then like when you look at it, you have all those memories from that time. That's what I love to do. My partner and I, we do that all the time. We buy something beautiful whenever we travel and it brings us continuous joy. And so I'm glad you do that too. Yeah. Um. And so today we have a case of rash and fever. And so I'm going to throw it over to Zach to get us started. Okay. Dr. Ghanem, today we are going to present a case of a 44-year-old man who has newly diagnosed HIV who's coming into the ID clinic with rash and fever. A little bit more about that. He's been experiencing about a week of subjective fevers, headache, and pharyngitis. He awoke on the day of presentation with non-puritic generalized rash. So he called to schedule an urgent appointment 
with the fellow in clinic today. On review of symptoms, he notices that he's had some intermittent blurry vision and floaters in his left eye for the past two days. A little bit more about his past medical history. He has, uh, especially his HIV, which was diagnosed four weeks ago at his PCP's office on routine STI screening. He was largely asymptomatic at the time, but was found to have a CD4 count of 340 with a viral load of 13,000 copies. He had screening labs done four weeks ago prior to starting antiretroviral therapy, including a non-reactive RPR. He was hepatitis B virus immune and had hep C and hepatitis A antibodies that were negative at the time. He also had negative latent tuberculosis infection screening and was negative for gonorrhea and chlamydia by nucleic acid amplification testing. Essentially, he was initiated on antiretroviral therapy with bictegravir, tenofovir alafenamide, and emtricitabine four weeks ago and hasn't missed a dose since starting and has established care at the clinic where he's coming in today. For his social history, he lives in Baltimore and works for a local youth development organization, but he's done some other nonprofit work with previously incarcerated individuals. He recently went on a vacation to Maine where he was backpacking in a national park, and he identifies as homosexual. He suspects he contracted HIV after having unprotected intercourse with a new male partner several months ago. He's not had any new partners since his diagnosis. He rarely drinks alcohol, endorses marijuana use two to three times per month, and has occasionally smoked crack cocaine while at a party, but has never injected drugs. He has a pet cat named Paladum. Dr. Ghanem, at this point, is there anything else you'd want to ask our patient? What rises to the top of your differential for this person living with HIV who comes in with rash and fever? Yeah, so it's a very interesting story. Um, and so um, there are lots of questions I would love to ask our patient, right? I mean, I'm an ID physician, and we want to ask about everything. Uh, and certainly the things that that um, I might consider is, uh, you know, one of the things that I would love to hear more about is his social history. Uh, you know, you told me a, a bit about, you know, his uh, exposures to his sex partner, his new sex partner. I would love to hear more about what he knows about about his sex partner because he could have a single sex partner, but then his sex partner could have 20 sex partners and that changes the risk profile significantly, right? And so that's, um, that's actually um, uh, worth noting. Um, another thing too that's worth noting is, you know, he has a cat named Paladum. How appropriate. Uh, and, you know, of course, uh, you know, I want to hear more about Paladum. It's a new cat. It's a baby kitten. Uh, I'm an ID physician. I care about these things. And so I'm sure Paladin is adorable, but it would be fun to hear more about Paladin and to learn more. He also went on a trip. I mean, you're baiting me with all of this. And so I want to know more about the trip. What did he do on the trip? Did he get bitten? Did he find a tick somewhere that shouldn't have been there? Um, you know, so a little bit more about the social history in general would be uh, worth, uh, worth the time. Um, 
uh, and certainly the things that, uh, you know, make you take pause a little bit with the story. And so this is a, a gentleman who is recently uh, diagnosed with HIV. Uh, the good news is that his CD4 count is not terrible. It's about 340. But even with a CD4 count of 340, uh, he is at risk for certain opportunistic infections, not all of them, but certain ones. And certainly the things that you think about are the possibility of a mycobacterial infection, particularly TB, and certainly a herpes, uh, herpes virus infections, which tend to occur at higher CD4 counts than other opportunistic infections. So uh, the good news is his CD4 count is reasonable. The great news is that he was started on antiretroviral therapy and he's tolerated it really well. And so usually patients tend to have lots of side effects early in the course of, retro, uh, of ART initiation. And the good news is that he has persisted and he's taking it. And this is phenomenal news. And so I'm delighted to hear that. The things that concern me a little bit. So, of course, he has these nonspecific signs and symptoms. Uh, I'll, I'll start by saying symptoms because I don't know about the signs yet. But he does have, you know, fever, headache, myalgias, pharyngitis. Not specific. You could have a very broad differential diagnosis there. What's more specific here, what allows us to be a little bit more um, uh, limited in our differential diagnosis would certainly be the rash. So he has a generalized rash. And then the thing that really allows us to narrow a little bit more our differential diagnosis is the blurry vision and the floaters. And that's also very concerning. Whenever I hear about visual symptoms, new onset visual symptoms, and somebody who's relatively young, I worry a little bit because I don't want to miss some Something that could be um, that could have you know uh, sequelae that are not reversible, and so those uh, things uh, make me um, uh, consider um, a broad differential diagnosis that includes bacterial infections. Uh, now, of course, I'm biased. I'm an infectious diseases physician, and so I'm going to start by saying, while this could be a non-infectious cause, some sort of autoimmune disease. Certainly, it could be the result of an inflammatory response to starting antiretroviral therapy a month ago. So this would fall within the, the, the time frame of IRIS, right? Um, immune reconstitution syndrome. It's possible. Um, and so certainly non-infectious or pseudo-infectious IRIS responses can occur during that time. I'm going to focus on, on infectious causes because I'm biased. And otherwise, why did you invite me if I'm going to talk about <laughs> autoimmune diseases? Uh, and so nobody should go into rheumatology. Everybody should go into infectious diseases. And the answers, you know, would be broad. And so you would think about the possibilities of bacterial infections. And certainly one of the things that I worry about when I hear about, you know, rashes and eye symptoms with typical bacteria would be endocarditis. As, as so I'd be interested to hear about the physical exam. He doesn't give specific risk factors for endocarditis, but sometimes patients won't give you the risk factors, and sometimes you may not have the typical risk factors. I'd like to hear about his, uh, you know, oral exam. What do you find on the oral? Does he have reasonable dentition? Uh, when you look at his skin, does he have any areas that uh, suggest that he has injected something? So that's usually helpful with the physical exam, and we'll learn more about it. Uh, certainly, other infections. He was, you know, camping. Who camps? Just go and stay in a hotel. 
There's no <laughs> point in camping. You don't get infectious diseases if you don't go camping. So do what I do. Stay at home under, you know, under artificial air, uh, air conditioning and heat. It will, you know, you will live a much healthier life. Uh, and so that's my advice to you as an ID physician. But he went out and he camped. And so he did, you know, a tick-borne infection certainly would figure on the differential diagnosis. He also has a new sex partner. And so sexually transmitted infections should be on the differential diagnosis. He does have a fever, rash, uh, pharyngitis. So you think about the possibility of uh, causes, the various causes um, of a mononucleosis syndrome or a mononucleosis-like syndrome. And so that's worth keeping in mind. That that's usually um, uh, usually either parasitic, but mostly viral. And so the herpes viruses would go on top of the differential diagnosis, certainly with a rash, with eye manifestations, HSV, VZV should really figure high on the differential diagnosis. And then all the other things that ID physicians are supposed to say, in addition to mycobacterial infections, we can think about fungal infections. Histoplasmosis can give you a rash, can go to the eye. Um, you know, he his CD4 count is not low enough for cryptococcus. His CD4 count is not low enough for a reactivation of toxoplasmosis, a parasite. Uh, but these are things that figure on the differential diagnosis in my mind. CD4 count is not low enough for a CMV infection uh, of the eye. But again, Everything figures on the differential diagnosis, uh, and I think I would love to hear more about his physical exam and go from there. That was fantastic. Uh, on physical exam, his temperature is 100.6 degrees Fahrenheit with a blood pressure of 118 over 78. His heart rate is 89, and he's satting well on room air. His uh, uh, oral exam, his dentition is uh, well-maintained. He's got several white patches, though, on his oral mucosa with a clean base. You also note several enlarged, non-tender but rubbery lymph nodes in the anterior cervical chain, as well as in his left axilla and epitrochlear regions. And then you note reduced visual acuity in his left eye. In addition to this faint erythematous macular rash that involves his palms and soles, you obtain some labs in clinic and find that his white blood cell count is 3.4, his platelets are 189, and his hemoglobin is 12. These are all relatively unchanged from prior. His electrolytes are within normal limits and his renal functions at baseline, but you do note an isolated elevated alkaline phosphatase to 233. You send off a peripheral blood smear, which is pending, you send a serum cryptococcal antigen as well as a urine histoplasma antibody, which is negative. And then you send a fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption, or FTA-ABS, which is positive. And that reflexes to an RPR, which comes back positive, at 1 to 252 dilutions. Dr. Ghanem, before we get into the clinical manifestations and stages of syphilis, can you talk us, take us through these syphilis results? Our patient's initial RPR was negative when he was diagnosed four weeks ago with HIV. Why do you think this was the case? In general, how do you think about serologic testing for syphilis too? 
Yeah, so this is really a fascinating story of a patient who comes in and he has clearly evidence of um, secondary syphilis, right? And we'll talk about the clinical manifestations um, later uh, based on what you just asked me. Now you asked me about uh, essentially, can I interpret the serological results of syphilis? And so I think that this is very interesting because four weeks ago, this gentleman had negative serologies. He had a negative uh, uh, serological test for syphilis done one month ago. And now he presents with classical secondary syphilis. Um, and usually secondary syphilis um, occurs about, you know, usually about a month to two months after primary syphilis. Um, and uh, usually that means that it tends to occur about three months after initial infection. And when do you see negative serological tests for syphilis? And the time that you're most likely to see negative serological tests for syphilis uh, is really early in the course of primary infection, right? So early in the course of primary infection, uh, you can see up to 30% of patients who will have non-reactive serological tests for syphilis, both the treponemal tests and the non-treponemal tests. And so um, this gentleman had negative serological tests for syphilis a month ago. So either he wasn't infected a month ago or he had early primary syphilis a month ago, and now he's presenting with florid secondary syphilis in just one month. Is that possible? And the answer is yes. And the next question is, well, who's the patient who's going to progress rapidly, who's more likely to progress rapidly? And the answer is usually it's an immunocompromised person. Uh, usually it's somebody that you see, for example, who is living with HIV, who is likely to progress more rapidly. It's somebody who's a, a transplant recipient who's immunocompromised. While non-immunocompromised patients, while immunocompetent patients can progress rapidly uh, uh, through, the, through the stages of syphilis, it is far less likely than in somebody who's immunocompromised. And so this is the right host uh, to progress rapidly from primary into secondary. And classically, the main difference that you see, there are two main differences that you see between uh, persons living with HIV who are infected with syphilis and immunocompetent persons who are infected with syphilis. The two main differences are, the first, a more rapid progression through the stages of syphilis. And in fact, in some persons living with HIV, you can see primary and secondary stages coexisting together. So now you can look to see if you see an ulcer, either in the genital tract, in the anal canal. You're describing now more secondary manifestations, the mucocutaneous lesions, the mucous lesions that are classically seen with secondary syphilis. Um, and, um, and so uh, in this case, you don't give me anything to suggest primary infection. You're giving me everything to suggest secondary infection. And so that's one of the things that you see that's different between a person living with HIV and somebody who's immunocompetent, uh, rapid progression or coexistence of uh, the two different stages at the same time. 
And then the second uh, thing that we see is that there is a slightly increased risk of early neurological or ocular complications in patients who are living with HIV as compared to, or who are immunosuppressed in general, as compared to patients who are immunocompetent. And yet again, you give me this with the patient. Uh, This is a patient who's presenting with ocular signs and symptoms, and he clearly has evidence of um, ocular manifestations based on the physical exam, a reduced vision in one of his eyes. Uh, And again, that raises the possibility of ocular syphilis coexisting with secondary syphilis uh, in this patient. And so finding a negative RPR in this patient four weeks ago is not terribly surprising. He progressed rapidly from early primary or no infection to secondary syphilis, but usually in secondary syphilis, everybody has reactive serologies. If you don't have reactive serologies and you have syphilis in secondary syphilis stage, then you have to think about the prozone phenomenon and you call the lab and you say, please uh, dilute the specimen for the non-treponemal serologies uh, and let me know if they come back positive. Uh, Usually it's an imbalance between antigen antibodies uh, and uh, you usually find that in secondary syphilis. But short of a prozone phenomenon, if you have negative serologies and you're thinking that this is the secondary syphilis stage, Stop thinking that it's syphilis. Uh, Syphilis, secondary syphilis, must have reactive serologies. And so this patient has reactive serologies. He's got classic secondary syphilis manifestations with the rash and the mucus patches, which are teeming with spirochetes. And then you tempt me with something, Zach. Uh, shame on you, but I have to take that temptation. Uh, as, I, as I am a syphilologist and I have to fall for every uh, abnormal lab test. Yet tell me his alkaline phosphatase is 233. Well, classically in secondary syphilis, you can find secondary syphilis hepatitis. It tends to occur with secondary syphilis. And the classic um, presentation of secondary syphilis hepatitis is a, an elevated alkaline phosphatase with normal or slightly elevated AST and ALT. And this guy has a probably normal AST and ALT, but a, an elevated alkaline phosphatase. Usually the alkaline phosphatase will be higher, 600, 700, 1,000. AST and ALT slightly elevated. Again, this may be consistent with hepatitis, syphilitic hepatitis in the setting of secondary syphilis. So our gentleman has a high RPR titer. He has positive treponemal tests, which confirm the RPR titer. And our patient also has uh, classic manifestations of secondary syphilis in addition to uh, what appears to be um, uh, syphilis of the eye or ocular syphilis. And certainly his headache, the presence of the headache, tells you that there may be coexistent neurosyphilis here. And remember that ocular syphilis, neurosyphilis, and otic syphilis are distinct entities, but they're treated the same way with 14 days of IV penicillin. But they are technically distinct entities. So this uh, patient has clearly ocular syphilis, but we'll need to find out whether he has coexistent neurosyphilis as well. Awesome. 
you're answering some questions before we even get there. That's great. <laughs> you know what? That's what I do. But you know, you also now let me let me interject sure. here, Zach, just to save you the tachycardia associated with what am I going to ask this guy next since he answered uh, my very next question. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna save you the tachycardia and uh, tell you a little bit. Uh, I think one of the things that gets people confused a lot about syphilis are the syphilis serologies, right? How do you interpret these syphilis serologies? And now there are two algorithms. Why are syphilologists making our lives more miserable? And the answer is we're not. We're good people. Uh, We don't deal with COVID. We're nice. Uh, We are reasonable. We are rational. Uh, And so uh, the things to remember about serologies, if you remember these four rules, you will be able to interpret any serological result related to syphilis. And there are four rules with serologies. And here they are, my friend. Zach, I'm making your life. Are you ready? Because I'm (laughs) going to make your life so much easier. I mean, you're going to just go, oh my gosh, syphilis is so easy. I can't believe I even did this podcast. So here goes. Uh, And so the rules are, the first rule we witnessed with our patient Serologies, both treponemal and non-treponemal, may be non-reactive in early primary syphilis. Our patient clearly had non-reactive serologies a month ago. I suspect he was already infected, but it was early in the course, and so he had negative serologies. Again, both treponemal and non-treponemal serologies may be non-reactive in early primary syphilis. That's one thing. And just to keep in mind, let me interject here one more thing. There are two different serologies, the non-treponemal tests or the lipoidal tests, and that's the RPR and VDRL, and then the treponemal test, and that's the EIA, CIA, FTA, MHATP, all the others are the treponemal ones. And so there are two different serologies, and both of those can be non-reactive in early primary syphilis. So that's the first rule. The second rule is uh, also an important one, and that is that uh, essentially both these antibodies, the treponemal and the non-treponemal antibodies, can be reactive uh, due to other causes that are non-syphilis related. So you can have false positive reactions. With the non-treponemal test, some of the common causes of false positive reactions are old age, but also HIV, other infections, and certainly autoimmune diseases like lupus and the antiphospholipid syndrome. Um, And then for the treponemal test, you can also have false positive tests. And these include, believe it or not, also old age, but more commonly uh, non-endemic treponematoses like uh, yaws, etc. So individuals that are coming from equatorial regions, you have to keep those things in mind. Lyme disease is also a cause of false positive treponemal tests, so keep that in mind. And then finally, um, a cause is severe gingivitis. There was a New England Journal paper in the early 80s by Sheila Lukart that showed that individuals with severe gingivitis actually have false positive treponemal tests. And remember, our mouth is full of non-syphilitic treponemes. The oral mucosa is full of treponemes. And that's the reason why you can't do a dark field microscopy on any oral lesions, because there's zero specificity. If I do it on you, and I'm assuming you don't have syphilis, uh, I will do a dark field from a mouth lesion. I'm going to find tons of treponemes. If you don't find tons of treponemes on dark field on an oral lesion, you don't know how to do a dark field. Get training in doing the dark field uh, because they're there. 
and they're also there in the stool. So doing any kind of swab near where something that could be um, contaminated with stool, that also has no specificity. So really, the dark field microscopy should be done on genital lesions. But now I digress. So, so far, we've talked about two rules. The first rule is that they can be, both antibodies can be negative in early primary syphilis. And then the second rule was these antibodies have false positives and uh, are due to things other than syphilis. Now, the next two rules are also very easy. The next rule deals with the treponemal antibodies. And the one thing you have to remember with treponemal antibodies is that once positive, always positive, irrespective of treatment history. So if uh, they, uh, if a patient gets infected with syphilis, whether you treat them or not, those treponemal antibodies are going to stay reactive for the rest of their life. That's why they're not useful in managing patients with syphilis. Uh, and then the last rule for non-treponemal antibodies is that these non-treponemal antibodies uh, may become non-reactive in persons who are treated for syphilis, but also in persons who are not treated for syphilis over time. So over time, these non-treponemal antibodies will become, may become non-reactive in a subset of patients who are treated, but also in a subset of patients who are not treated. And so finding a negative RPR essentially either means that the patient doesn't have syphilis or the patient had syphilis in the past and was adequately treated or the patient had syphilis in the distant past and they were never treated or the patient has early primary syphilis. Those are the options for a negative RPR. With a negative treponemal test, the options are the patient doesn't have syphilis or the patient has early primary syphilis. Those are the only options for a, a negative treponemal test. Now that you know the four rules for, uh, for interpreting syphilis serologies, you can interpret any syphilis serological test combination that comes your way, either through the traditional syphilis testing algorithm, which starts with a non-treponemal test, the RPR, and then if the non-treponemal test is positive, they will get a treponemal test to confirm it, or a reverse sequence algorithm, uh, which essentially starts with a treponemal test, and then if it's positive, you get a non-treponemal test uh, to be able to stage the patient. And so now, whatever combination of treponemal, non-treponemal test result I give you, Zach, you will be able to interpret uh, that, that result based on the four rules that we just talked about. I love that. Amazing. Given our concern for early syphilis with ocular and potentially CNS involvement, our patient is sent to the ED and then admitted to the medicine floor. Once there, an LP is performed, which is notable for a white blood cell count of 18 cells per milliliter with a differential of 88% lymphocytes, a protein of 52 milligrams per deciliter, and a CSF VDRL of 1 to 2. Ophthalmology is also emergently consulted in their fundoscopic exam is consistent with left-sided posterior uveitis. Dr. Ghanem, how do you decide who needs an LP in these situations, and how would you treat our patient? 
Fabulous. Great, great, great story. Um, and so this, uh, uh, this patient clearly has um, ocular syphilis, but also clearly has neurosyphilis because his uh, CSF examination was abnormal. So first, let's talk about who should get a CSF examination, because that's always a source of controversy, uh, and people get really bent out of shape about that. And so let me make it very easy for you. Certainly, anybody who has evidence of serological uh, infection with syphilis. So now we're assuming that all of the people that we're going to talk about are people that have serological evidence of syphilis or clinical evidence of syphilis if they have early primary syphilis and their serologies are negative. So if you suspect that a patient has syphilis, any patient that you see uh, that you suspect has syphilis uh, or that has syphilis treated or untreated from the past, you always ask about uh, neurological symptoms you always ask about ocular symptoms and you always ask about otic symptoms. And so I always ask my patients, have you had recent headaches? Have those headaches changed? Um, do you have any weakness anywhere in your body? Uh, are you having problems with walking? Uh, if there's somebody with them, I'll ask, have you noticed any personality changes in, uh, in your patient? Um, then I will also ask about vision loss, redness, uh, floaters in uh, their visual fields. I will ask about about um, tinnitus or ringing in the ears. I will ask about hearing loss, um, and I will ask about dizziness. And you can ask those questions in less than two minutes uh, and essentially do what you're supposed to do to pick up any potential um, uh, evidence of neurosyphilis, ocular syphilis, or otic syphilis. So it only takes about one to two minutes to ask those questions. And remember, a lot of patients have ocular symptoms, but figure out whether these ocular symptoms are new onset or whether they've been existing for the last 10 years. A lot of patients may have decreased hearing. But you know what? If they tell you, you know, I've had decreased hearing for the last 20 years, you can take a deep breath. This is probably not otic syphilis. And so try to get a history and pay particular attention to recent um, unanticipated uh, changes in, uh, uh, in these symptoms that they're having. If they have, um, and certainly do a full uh, uh, neurological exam, it really takes three minutes to do a full ocular neurological exam, uh, and that should be done on every patient that comes in with uh, the possibility, well, any, any patient that comes in with syphilis. Um, and so once you do that, um, what you do, like, for example, in this patient, this patient clearly had decreased vision in one of his eyes, and what you did was absolutely correct. You didn't dilly-daddle. You sent this patient immediately for evaluation. So if you find concerning signs or symptoms that are consistent with either neurosyphilis, ocular syphilis, or otic syphilis, you have to refer immediately. I can tell you that in the state of Maryland, in the last year, we had three patients who were suspected of having ocular syphilis. They had clear signs and symptoms. And for some reason or another, they were not referred immediately. And, you know, the ophthalmologist said, I'll see them next week. They showed up next the, the following week with complete blindness in one eye in two cases and both eyes in one case. And in that case, with both eyes, uh, it was not reversible even with treatment. So the, the take-home message here is if you suspect these clinical manifestations of syphilis, you need to refer immediately for evaluation. Do not dilly-dally 
daily. And don't think that by giving one dose of benzathine penicillin IM, you're going to solve the problem. So if you don't have an ophthalmologist that can see them that same day, refer them to the emergency room, call the emergency room and say, listen, I'm worried about this patient. He could have ocular uh, syphilis. He needs to be evaluated, admitted, and started on antibiotics. So in this case, what you did, and so who needs um, a, a lumbar puncture? And so anybody that has evidence of neurological signs or symptoms. Now, if they only have ocular signs or symptoms, or if they only have otic signs and symptoms, and no other neurological signs and symptoms, you do not need to do a lumbar puncture. Because up to 40% of persons with ocular syphilis and over 90% of persons with otic syphilis will have a normal CSF exam, and you will still have to treat them with 14 days of IV penicillin. And so it doesn't change the outcome in any way. In your patient, though, you had clear ocular manifestations, but you also had that headache, which was probably new, which was probably different. And so you were concerned about the coexistence of neurosyphilis. And that is why the LP in this patient was important. And so the patient underwent a CSF examination, and the CSF examination came back with classic evidence of neurosyphilis. He had pleocytosis. And remember, pleocytosis is the most sensitive test for neurosyphilis, uh, but it's not specific, right? Anything can cause an elevated white cell count in the CSF. Uh, and But what you did have was you also had evidence of a positive CSF VDRL of 1 to 2. That's the most specific diagnostic test. This is confirmed neurosyphilis. Remember, though, that 50% of persons with neurosyphilis will have a negative CSF VDRL. The other thing to remember with neurosyphilis is that if you get a normal lumbar puncture, you have ruled out neurosyphilis. A normal lumbar puncture rules out neurosyphilis, but it doesn't rule out ocular syphilis or otic syphilis. So again, this patient, you did beautifully with this patient because you referred him immediately because you were concerned about the ocular signs and symptoms and the headache. Everything was done appropriately. The patient had an ocular exam and they found posterior uveitis. Posterior uveitis, believe it or not, and uveitis in general is the most common ocular manifestation of of, uh, syphilis, uh, of ocular syphilis. And the patient underwent a lumbar puncture with sort of the classic abnormalities that you would see. Again, a normal lumbar puncture rules out neurosyphilis. Um, the, uh, I always get the, asked this question. I ha- did a lumbar puncture. There was no pleocytosis. The CSF VDRL was normal. And they had a slightly increased protein. What should I do? And the answer is it's probably not neurosyphilis. I mean, neurosyphilis, pleocytosis has to be present. Otherwise, you really um, have to think very hard about the diagnosis of neurosyphilis. What do I do in these cases? Can I give you my, my little secret? So here's what I do. I order a CSF treponemal test. The CSF treponemal test, the problem with it is it's not specific, but it's sensitive. And so if it comes back negative, it rules out 
neurosyphilis. If it comes back positive, it doesn't rule in neurosyphilis. So I send it, and when it comes back negative, I tell the person, listen, slightly elevated protein with a negative treponemal CSF test, it's not neurosyphilis, look for something else. So we talked about neurosyphilis, we talked about ocular syphilis, we talked about otic syphilis, and we said that LPs are not needed if a patient only has ocular signs or symptoms or otic signs and symptoms, but they're absolutely needed for patients who have neurological signs and symptoms. So the first reason to get an LP is the presence of neurological signs or symptoms. Immediately you do an LP. The other reason, which you're probably not going to encounter, is if you see a patient with tertiary syphilis, like cardiovascular syphilis or gummatous syphilis. 30 to 40% of those patients have concomitant asymptomatic neurosyphilis that's there, and the treatment would change. Remember, for tertiary syphilis, cardiovascular, and gummatous, you can give them three doses of benzathine penicillin G. But if they have concomitant neurosyphilis, you have to give them IV penicillin for 14 days, 10 to 14 days. So that's the other reason. And then the third and final reason to do a lump consider a lumbar puncture, is if you have a patient that you treat uh, that has syphilis, you treat them appropriately, and then uh, you expect the titers to go down fourfold. But if the titers go up fourfold, so if their titers go up fourfold, and they deny the possibility of reinfection, so they say, no, I have not had any sexual contacts that could put me at risk for reinfection. A fourfold increase in titers, once you've ruled out the possibility of reinfection in someone who was treated appropriately, should make you consider a lumbar puncture to make sure that you're not missing uh, asymptomatic neurosyphilis in those patients. So these are the three indications for lumbar punctures, neurological signs or symptoms, tertiary syphilis. Uh, and an increase, a fourfold increase in titers in somebody who denies reinfection. If they say, yes, I've had an exposure, then just go ahead and retreat them. Don't do a lumbar puncture. But if they deny that, then you can go ahead and do a lumbar puncture. Now, the big controversy is should you do it on all your HIV, persons living with HIV? And the answer is no. Uh, there are no data to suggest better outcomes. There are limited data out there, granted, but uh, there are no data to suggest better outcomes if you do a lumbar puncture in a person living with HIV who has no neurological signs or symptoms. So at the last uh, treatment guidelines meeting, so I'm uh, one of the expert um, uh, matter, uh, subject matter experts for syphilis uh, for the 2021 guidelines. We asked the question to the experts out there. We said, how many of you would do a routine uh, CSF exam in a person living with HIV who has no neurological signs or symptoms? symptoms, nobody raised their hands. So I think uh, that for most people out there, they would not do a CSF examination. Of course, be aware that you might miss asymptomatic neurosyphilis in a small number of these patients. Uh, and so if you feel more comfortable doing a CSF examination in somebody who has HIV, particularly those who have a CD4 count less than 350 uh, and or those who have an RPR titer that's greater than 1 to 32, in those patients, it's not unreasonable to do a CSF examination. I just don't do it myself. And most people would not do it routinely in these patients. So hopefully I've uh, given you a long-winded answer to a very simple question. Who could should get a CSF exam? Those are the three indications, neurological signs and symptoms, tertiary syphilis, or increasing titers in the face of, in the absence of reinfection. 
Wonderful. Our patient gets started on penicillin GIV, and he completes a 14-day course, which uh, results in improvement uh, in his generalized symptoms and return of his uh, normal vision. Hurrah! That is excellent (laughs) news. That is great news. Um, And um, I feel so good about this, because if you had waited, then the possibility of sequelae that were not reversible with treatment uh, increases. And in fact, when you treat somebody with neurosyphilis, ocular or otic syphilis, the goal of treatment is to stop progression, uh, but it doesn't always lead to reversal of signs and symptoms. And if the signs and symptoms have been for persistent for a while, the likelihood of re- reversal actually goes down. Uh, and so don't be surprised if they don't have complete cure. In this case, we're so lucky he had a complete resolution of signs and symptoms, but don't be surprised if the signs and symptoms don't resolve completely, particularly in patients who've had longer standing signs and symptoms. As we're wrapping up the show, we wanted to take a a pause and highlight the take-homes on syphilis from this episode. Uh, In addition to those, Dr. Ghanem, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure we hit on? Yeah, sure. So, uh, of course, I mean, you're asking a syphilologist if there's more to talk about syphilis. <laughs> yes, I'm going to talk more about syphilis. This this podcast is not over, my friends. Um, and so, uh, essentially, um, what I think you should... Uh, there's uh, also controversy about the use of steroids, right? So, with ocular syphilis, even in neurosyphilis and otic syphilis, sometimes you hear a neurologist or an ENT um, surgeon or an, uh, an ophthalmologist say, can we use steroids? And usually, and there are no data to go either way. I mean, there are no convincing data that they make a difference, but there are very limited data. They have, been, they're not, have, been, they have not been any randomized control trial. And so the answer for me is always this. If the patient doesn't have a contraindication to steroids, uh, and if, there are, if there's evidence of inflammatory lesions, sometimes you can see scars, and steroids don't help with the scars. But if you see inflammation, right, uveitis, itis, inflammation, uh, then in that situation, using steroids is not unreasonable. So I don't object to the use of steroids if there's evidence of inflammation and if the patient doesn't have contraindications. So for example, a brittle diabetic, I probably wouldn't recommend steroids. Otherwise, if they have no contraindications, then steroids may be used. You have to use relatively high doses of steroids. Usually they're oral. If the lesion in the eye is superficial, you could potentially use topical steroids. But if the lesion in the eye is actually deeper in, or if it's central, or if it's otosyphilis, uh, then you have to use uh, oral steroids. And usually you have to use them for about 14 up to 21 days. Uh, In general, I don't recommend them, but if somebody feels strongly about using them, I have no objections to uh, using them. Then the next question that comes up is, uh, this patient had an LP initially. Do we need to do another follow-up LP at six months? And the answer is, if the patient continues to take his ART and is doing well on his ART, there is no reason to repeat a CSF examination. So the 2021 treatment guidelines suggest that if the patient is clinically better, and the patient's RPR, serological titers, go down appropriately over the next over the next 12 to 24 months, you do not need to repeat a lumbar puncture in neurosyphilis. That's great news. I mean, let's be honest. 
it was hard to find a patient who would agree to get an LP six months after, particularly if they're feeling better. And so it wasn't being done anyway, but now we have good reason not to do it. Uh, if they're clinically better and if their titers go down appropriately, then you can forego uh, the lumbar puncture. And the last point that I'm going to make before I end this, before you kick me off this podcast, <laughs> because we could go on for hours and hours with syphilis, ladies and gentlemen, but the, but the last point I'm going to make, and this is something that uh, obviously frustrates a lot of ID fellows, Sarah, um, and that is you're going to get called about serological titers that don't do what they're supposed to do after you treat yep. the patient. <laughs> and so let's, let's put an end to the hassle and answer the question. It's relatively easy. So once you treat somebody, so let's say we treat our patient here. Clinically, he's doing much better. He is, his symptoms have resolved. Hurrah. And his titers should go down fourfold. Now, remember, he had early syphilis, and so his titers should go down fourfold uh, by the end of a year. So at 12 months, his titers should go down fourfold. If he had late latent syphilis or late neurosyphilis or late ocular syphilis, his titers should go down fourfold at the end of two years or 24 months. So early, it's 12 months. Uh, late, it's 24 months. Let's assume this patient's titers at 12 months have not gone down fourfold. They've not gone up, but they haven't gone down fourfold. What do you do? It's so easy. The first thing you do is you ask about neurological, ocular, and otic signs and symptoms. If they have any, then you treat appropriately. If they don't have any signs and symptoms like that, the next question I ask is, was there any potential for reinfection during that time? If there was evidence of potential for reinfection, then just whip out the penicillin and give them a dose of 2.4 million units of benzathine penicillin and call it a day. If there was no potential for reinfection and the patient is completely asymptomatic and the titers have not gone down fourfold, what should you do? One option is give them more treatment. The other option is to watch and wait. There have been four studies that have been done that have shown that in essentially giving more treatment in the intermediate term makes no difference. And so the answer is if the titers don't go down fourfold and the patient is asymptomatic and the patient was not reinfected, then what you need to do is keep following them expectantly. Just say, you know what, we'll see you in three to six months and we'll repeat the titers and I just keep following those patients. I just, I'm not trigger happy with penicillin. I don't give more penicillin. Now, the other possibility is that this patient's titers start going down, but then they go up fourfold, right? That's the other possibility. And so what should you do? In that case, again, you ask about neurological signs and symptoms, and if they have any, you treat accordingly. The next question is, has the patient been re-exposed, reinfected? That's the most common reason why the titers go up fourfold. If they have, just give them penicillin and you're done. If they haven't, right, if they haven't been re-exposed and they have no signs and symptoms, in that case, when the titers go up fourfold, then you should consider doing a lumbar puncture because they could have asymptomatic neurosyphilis and you would find it and it, that would change your treatment approach. So now you know how to manage titers that don't go down fourfold and titers that go up fourfold 
in after the appropriate treatment of syphilis. Ladies and gentlemen, I am done. You're done with me. Uh, and uh, what I would like to say, though, to folks who are listening, if you have any questions about syphilis and difficult syphilis patients, feel free to email me. You can Google my name. Uh, my email address comes up. You can send me an email. I enjoy, uh, as you can tell, I enjoy talking about syphilis. Uh, and so thank you very much. Oh, I love it. We covered a lot of the big questions that come up. And I, I think that it's just getting used to it. And I think over time, like, that's the thing I've learned is, I just have to go back, like, find your reference that you keep for yourself, like, write down these rules that we talked about and just refer to it. And over time, you just get more comfortable and um kind of know what the next step is, what the next question is. Absolutely. Syphilis is the so. easiest and most interesting infection, infectious disease in the world. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's not COVID. Uh, <laughs> let me just tell you, it isn't COVID. Uh, it is all about syphilis. And so join me to the, come to the dark side and become syphilologists. I'm trying to recruit Zach. Sarah is a lost cause, but Zach <laughs> is not. And I'm going to recruit Zach to the dark side. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> uh, well, thank you guys both for being here. I had a great time and there's so much good information in this. So I can't wait to share with everyone. I hope you guys had as much fun as I did learning about syphilis in this episode. A big thank you to Zach for crafting this excellent learning case on some of those big questions we think about related to syphilis, and to Khalil for being our enthusiastic syphilologist for the day. As always, I will plug our website, febrilepodcast.com, where you'll find the written complement to the show known as consult notes, as well as a ton of ID infographics. So we'll have some coming out on syphilis that you can save and use to teach Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows, questions, or just want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.